pocket. Psalms chapter number 80 this evening. And I'd like to begin reading in verse number 7. I'm going to read down to verse number 14. The psalmist writing says, Turn us again, O God of hosts, and cause thy face to shine, and we shall be saved. Thou hast brought a vine out of Egypt. Thou hast cast out the heathen and planted it. Thou preparest room before it, and didst cause it to take deep root, and it filled the land. The hills were covered with the shadow of it, and the boughs thereof were like the goodly cedars. She sent out her boughs unto the sea, and her branches unto the river. Why hast thou then broken down her hedges, so that all they which pass by the way do pluck her? The boar out of the wood doth waste it, and the wild beast of the field doth devour it. Notice verse 14, it's our text this evening. The psalmist writing cries and pleads, and he says, Return, we beseech thee, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven, and behold, and visit this vine. Let's read this once again. Read, uh, return, we beseech thee, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and behold and visit this vine. Let's pray together tonight. Heavenly Father, I just ask that you'd bless your word. We're trying to follow the unction and leading and guidance of the Holy Ghost this evening. Father, I'm not asking tonight to have an eloquent sermon. Father, I'm not asking, Lord, for it to be something that people would do and awe at. But God, I'm just asking for your presence and power to be manifest this evening. Help me in the preaching. Help us all in the listening and help us all to be submitted to your Holy Spirit. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. As you read Psalms chapter number 80, you'll find that a metaphor is being used, a narrative is being told concerning the nation of Israel. And you may have picked up on that there in verse number 8 where it says, Thou hast brought a vine out of Egypt, thou hast cast out the heathen and planted it. Thou preparedest room before it, and didst cause it to take deep root, and it filled the land. So the psalmist is speaking about the nation of Israel. Uh, But could I say to you tonight, and we kind of preached along this line on Sunday night, that in many ways the the manner in which God deals with Israel is similar to the manner in which God deals with us. And you say, well, preacher, why is that so? Well, because we're both God's people. Now, the Jews are God's earthly people, but you and I were God's heavenly people. And uh, they're the children of God in a sense, and we are the children of God in a sense. And I understand fully that there's a distinction uh, between the Jewish nation and between the New Testament church. I'm not trying to in any way make those two things synonymous. Uh, But I do believe that as we study the Word of God, we'll find a lot of similarities. And so David is speaking about the trouble and trial, the uh, compassment about of wicked men of the nation of Israel. And what he's asking God to do is to visit them once again and to restore them and to deliver them from their enemies. You know, when I think about the church, it just sounds a lot to me like the idea of revival. Do you know that you and I, God saved us spiritually out of Egypt? We were lost in sins and trespasses. We were on our way to a devil's hell. We were in a dark land just as the nation of Israel was. And God, with a high and holy hand, lifted us out and redeemed us. I'm thankful that God's the one that has planted the New Testament church. It's not St. Peter. Uh, St. Peter wasn't a more saint than you or I. He was a saint because he was saved by God's grace. You and I are saints too. Uh, But the Apostle Peter is not the foundation of the New Testament church. Uh, He did not start the New Testament church. 
church. Christ is the one that's building His church. He's the foundation. He's the head of the corner and the chief cornerstone of the New Testament church. And so God has certainly planted His church within this world. Uh, but as you read this passage, you'll find the, uh, uh, the planting of this church, but you'll find the progress of this church, in a sense. When it speaks in verse 10, it says, "...the hills were covered with the shadow of it, and the bows thereof uh, were like the goodly cedars." Uh, she sent out her bows unto the sea and her branches unto the river. Now, uh, you know, I don't think it's any, uh, uh, any damage to do towards the idea of the New Testament church to say that the New Testament church has been successful. Wouldn't you believe that? The gospel of Jesus Christ has been spread all throughout the world. And uh, I'm thankful that the gospel of Jesus Christ is not something that we have monopolized here in America. I'm thankful that there's saved bodies of believers all over this world. And in a sense, I believe that the church's bowels have stretched all over this world. So we see the progress of the New Testament church. But I believe, too, we see the plucking of the New Testament church. Look what it says in verse 12. Why hast thou then broken down her hedges, so that all they which pass by the way do pluck at her? Now you say, well, what does that mean? Well, we're talking about a vine here, and it's saying that the fence has been torn down around it, and uh, every once in a while somebody would walk by and they just pull a little bit off of it. Do you know that's what the world's doing to the church today? Uh, you know, it's not a full-on annihilation, and thank God it never will be. I mean, the church ain't going to be snuffed out. The church's going to be raptured out. Amen? But there's no question that you look around at this world and uh, you can almost see it. Politicians and lawyers and uh, quote-unquote civil rights activists. And, you know, I don't know how civil they are when they're trying to tell me that I can't worship God, Brother Ralph. That don't sound very civil to me. But all these various things taking place. and It's like the world's just coming by and picking. Just picking. A little bit here. A little bit there. A little bit of our liberties here. A little bit of our liberties there and just trying to diminish the scope and work of the New Testament church. And, you know, as you read through this passage, you find this idea of the plucking of the New Testament church. It goes on in verse number 13, when it says, "...the boar out of the wood doth waste it, and the wild beast of the field doth devour it." And there certainly is an all-out attack on the New Testament church. But here in verse 14, David pleads for God to show up in a big way in the nation of Israel. Can I say to you that what revival is about is the presence of God. There's a lot of things we could say revival is about. We could say revival is about winning people to Christ. And it's certainly a blessed thing when people come to know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. But that's not what revival is about. And we could say, well, you know, revival's about fellowship, and fellowship's a wonderful thing. We love fellowship, and there's nothing wrong with it. We could say that revival is about uh, giving, and I certainly I believe when we get revived, uh, it's not just going to be us, but our giving that gets revived. But what is revival really about? Revival is really about the manifest presence of God within a local body of believers. What the psalmist is asking God to do here is not just uh, to pay attention, although he does ask God to do that, not just to deliver, although he does ask God to do that, but the very uh, thrust of what the psalmist is asking is for the presence of God. He says, God, I want you to visit this vine. Here in a few weeks, we're going to have our revival services. And, I, man, I'm excited about it. I mean, I, I don't know if you are, but I've been getting excited already. And I'm looking forward to seeing what God's going to do. But can I say, you know, we could have all the special preachers in the world in. I mean, we could have the kind of preaching that just take the paint off the walls. We could have the kind of singing that would just shake the rafters. But if God is not present, we've not accomplished anything. If God doesn't show up and, and take up more of our lives, then revival has not taken place. 
And I believe that our hearts cry in this upcoming revival. But listen, not just in that meeting, but in our everyday lives, from now till then and even farther than then, our hearts cry ought to be just like this psalmist. And I want to show you why tonight. I see three things in this passage, and I'm going to do my best to be brief this evening. I want to say that the first thing that we see here is the precedent for revival is spoken of. Now, you'll find as you read the Word of God that there's two kinds of truths in the Word of God. There's explicit truth, and there's implicit truth. Now, you say, what do you mean, Brother Toby? I mean, explicit truth means when God says something. Implicit truth means when God says something without saying it. You understand what I mean? There's some things that are implied by the very first word that the psalmist uses in this passage. He uses the word return. Now, when I think of the word return, there's a lot of things that come to my mind, Brother Ralph, but I would say that there's three things this implies. Can I say that the first thing that this little word return implies is a previous manifestation of God in their lives. I mean, you don't ask somebody to return to some place they've never been before, do you? When you ask somebody to return, you're implying that they once have been here, they since have left, and you're pleading with them to come to a place where they have once been and do it again. Can I say that revival uh, is in God's M.O., so to speak? <laughs> Revival is not some unknown phenomenon. God's been reviving His people uh, for ages. Revival is a, uh, or it ought to be a common thing in the life of believers. In fact, I would say that what we call revival really is just victorious living. You know it? Really what we call revival is just what God expects and wants to bless His people with. It ought not be something that we just look for every now and then, but to walk in the fullness of the Holy Ghost and to walk in the power of God and to walk with our lives submitted to Him and in sweet communion with God Almighty, that ought to be par for the course for us day in and day out. But as you study through history, and we could study through biblical history, and you'd find that God had visited this vineyard before. Uh, there had been time and time again, of course, the first time as a nation was there in Egypt, and God visited in a big way. Uh, you come out of Egypt, and you'd find them by the waters of Meribah, and God visited there. You'd find them all through the wilderness, day in and day out. God would visit them, uh, a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. God was ever present with His people. And all through the Old Testament, you'll find time and time again when God would show up when His people needed Him in a big way. This thing, revival, there's plenty of precedent for it. We could go into church history of the New Testament church, and I'll confess we've got to be careful reading church history because it's not inspired. Anything after you get past the book of Acts in relation to church history, unless it just be a snippet here or there recorded in God's holy inspired Word, anything from a secular source is not inspired, and we have to be careful about that. But I'd say a lot of you can remember times in your life when you saw revival when you saw God sweep in and save souls and do a mighty work in church lives. You can remember times when churches collectively just became broken over their sin and repented. And we could talk about the revivals that have taken place in history. We could talk about the Great Awakening in this country. We could talk about the revivals that the Wesley brothers held. We could talk about the revivals that Mr. Moody and Mr. Sankey held. It was said that they took two nations, and one in each hand, and shook them towards God. We could talk about great revivalists all 
all through the 1800s when there was an open door for the gospel and God was sending out missionaries all throughout the entire world. We could go into the late 1800s, early 1900s, talk about the Welsh revivals uh, when just a handful began to pray and God shook the Welsh countryside, closed down taverns and brothels and left a mark for holiness on that place that was felt for hundreds of years. Not hundreds of years, Brother Ralph. It's not been hundreds of years, but for decades after. We could talk about how God has moved in this country. Uh, maybe in a smaller sense in the past 50, 60 years, but still some of you can remember some of these times. I'm saying that, that it's not unusual and it's not unheard of for God to move in the life of His people. Uh, you know, we've seen God do big things at our church in times past, and we could measure them against a bunch of different things. And I think there's a lot of futility in trying to measure what God's done in your church against what He's doing in some other church. But suffice it to say that uh, there is a precedent for God moving in the lives of His people. The word return implies a previous manifestation. But, Brother Gary, I believe it also implies a possible visitation. Uh, you believe, if you ask somebody to return, you believe that they have the capacity to do it, don't you? You're not asking somebody to do something that they're incapable of doing. Could I say that God's still able to work in the hearts and lives of His people, both individually and as a local, congregated body of believers? God's still able. Uh, now, I mean, I understand there's a lot of dispute and debate about what we could see as a nation, and I'm fully aware that we as a nation are apostate, and I believe that with my whole heart. Uh, it doesn't matter how many programs, cooperative or uncooperative, they get together. You'll never convince me in a nation where we've murdered over 45 million unborn children. You'll never convince me we're not apostate. I mean, we're carrying them to the fires of self-will and self-desire. We're no better than the ancient Israelites that cast their children into the fires of Moloch. We're no different than they were. We're just not burning them on a physical fire. We're burning them on the carnal fire of self Will. I understand we're apostate in this country, but I also believe that as a church body, God's still able to provide us revival and a stirring and a moving in a mighty way in our life. Listen, we've got to believe that if we're ever going to see revival. I mean, I believe that, that you know, faith has a lot to do with obedience, don't you? Uh, but let me say that I believe faith also has a lot to do with, well, faith, believing, trusting. We've got to believe God is able to. And we're not putting words in God's mouth when we say that. God has promised time and time again. I've heard people quote before, if my people which are called by my name... And some people don't like that. They say, well, that don't have to do with the church. Well, uh, listen, uh, the majority of that Bible don't have to do with direct application to the church. But these things were written for our admonition, the Bible says. But you go on through there, and time and time again, through the Pauline epistles, Paul talks about praying for God to move in a big way in the lives of these churches, that they'd be knit together, that they'd know the grace of God, that God would be manifest amongst them. And I think it's still possible for God to do these things. I think it's possible. And you say, well, preacher, we don't need revival. Well, yeah, sure we do. Every one of us does. This church needs revival. You say, well, what about that other church? Well, you ain't never going to see it if you're worried about that other church. It ain't about that other church. It's about our church, and our church needs it. We all need it. We need a closer walk with Christ. We need a greater commitment, and we have to believe that God's able to do that in our lives. Well, let me give you a third thing implied by this little word, return. I believe not only uh, is there a previous manifestation that is implied and a possible visitation, Brother Gary, but I believe we also see a providential inclination. You say, what do you mean? Uh, I mean this. If you, if you ask someone to return, you're implying they've been there before, they're able to come back again, and if you ask them, they probably will. 
You don't ask someone to do something that you know that they won't do. They may be able to do it. There's some people that I could ask them to do stuff, and, and I know they're able. There, there's, uh, if, you drive, if you live out in Halls and you drive down Cunningham any time, there's some big old there's a fella, he's got a big house, I mean, bigger than you could fit 10 of my house in it. And it's, uh, there's some name. What's the name of that place up there? DeBusk, DeBusk. How did he get rich? Everybody got sick and he made money. And <laughs> the DeBusk mansion over there. I'd say that fella, you know, I could be wrong, but I'd say if I come to him, he could probably pay every single bill that I've got, don't you think? He's able to. He might have even done that before for some of his family. But I've got a good inclination, too. If I knocked on his door, I wouldn't hear anything but that he's going to call the police. I wouldn't go ask him because I know he's not apt to do it. The psalmist is asking God to do this because he knows God is willing to, if he'll only ask. I still believe God's willing to revive his people. I still believe it's in the will of God that we see the power of God manifest in a local body of believers. I still believe it's the will of God for revival to take place in local churches. Now, there's some people don't believe that. That's just the honest truth. There's some that are uh, doomsdayers and naysayers. But when I read the Word of God, I don't see that. God never bluffs us, Brother Ralph. He don't ever ask us to do anything but what He's willing to answer if we will only call upon Him. And time and time again in the Word of God, we are exhorted to call upon the name of the Lord that He would answer us if we would just call unto Him. He would answer us in a mighty way. Uh, You find me one verse that says we can't have revival. Find me one. One single verse that says that God won't answer. If we, I can show you a hundred that say he will, Brother Ralph. I believe this word return implies this. So we see that there is a precedent. Revival is a worthwhile venture. It's not just a pipe dream. It's not something that only some can have and others cannot. Uh, if they're all willing to abide by the same things that God expects of them. Uh, revival is something we can all have if we're willing to do what it takes. But there's some prerequisites. There's some things that we have to do. And I want you to notice the psalmist points them out. He says, return, return. He begins with this call to the Lord. And notice what he says. He says, we beseech thee, O God of hosts. Now, every single word in your King James Bible is there for a reason. None of it is there on accident. There's some things that we gather from this little phrase, we beseech thee, O God of hosts, some things that we're going to have to do if we're going to see revival. Let me say the first thing that we see is we're going to have to be collective. He doesn't say, uh, I beseech you, or they beseech you, or he or she, or this one or that one. He says, we beseech thee. O God of hosts. This was a collective effort. Can I say that revival doesn't come to an ununified church? It doesn't come to an ununified church. We've got to be of one mind and one spirit and of one accord if God's going to move amongst us. You see, that's where the, that's where the brunt of personal responsibility uh, bursts into our existence is because we understand that if I've got a problem with my brother or my sister, I could be the very one hindering from God being able to move in a mighty way. I don't say that to bully or bluff anyone. I believe that's a scriptural premise. Time and time again, you find the ideal of guilt by association through the Word of God. Uh, some people would say that Sapphira was just following her husband, but she wound up dead just the same, didn't she? 
Some people would say uh, that Achan's family didn't do anything wrong, uh, that they was just related to Achan, but they was guilty by association. Some would say that the uh, family of those or the friends of those that were there with Korah, there's probably a few that got swallowed up that hadn't tried to go with him, but there was guilt by association. There's something to be said for unity. And I don't mean union. My old preacher used to always say, well, there's a difference between union and unity. And you can have, he used to always say, you take two cats, tie their tails together, and you'd have union. But that don't mean you have unity. <laughs> Just because you take two people going opposite directions and sandwich them together and pretend like that's some kind of ecumenical utopia, that doesn't mean that it's unity. Unity is a doctrinal thing. Unity is a spiritual thing. Unity is a uh, thing that has to do with our ambitions and our desires. Listen, you can have a whole church that's doctrinally in line, but if they're not all seeking revival, it's not going to happen. You can have a whole church that's seeking revival, but if there's doctrinal division or if there's doctrinal uh, rebellion or discontentment, you're not going to have revival. You can have people that are doctrinally in line and people that have a desire to have revival, but that aren't spiritual and not have revival. I'm saying there has to be a spirit of unity in a church on all matters before you're going to have revival. Uh, part of the reason that a lot of churches don't have it is because they're too busy fussing and fighting. And uh, part of the reason another group of churches ain't never going to have revival, listen carefully, they're not fussing and fighting anymore. They're, they're like that old couple that's already fought all their fights they're going to fight, and they're just waiting the other one out to die. <laughs> ain't that right? I mean, there's some churches that they give up trying to do anything for God because it causes too much bickering. God help us when we will let the, bu- the devil bully us through divisiveness into not serving Him. There's a lot of churches like that. They don't ever want to try anything new because it might upset somebody. Well, my goodness, just give them a hanky. They'll be all right. We need to go on and do something for Jesus Christ. And if we never... Listen, it's easy to get along when we're not serving God. (laughs) It's easy. If you're just sitting in an armchair across from each other, you can get along fine. But you ever try to work on anything with, with anybody? You start butting heads pretty quick. You've got different egos, different ideals. Some of you married people know what I'm talking about. You're not amening because you don't want to admit it. But you know just what I'm talking about. Some, some of you married folk, when you have to, when you got to fix the dishwasher, I mean, it's World War III, you know? You know what I'm talking about. When you start serving God and doing something, you got to put your egos aside and determine that you're going to uh, crucify your flesh for the cause of revival. It's going to have to be collective. It can't just be one or two. I know we've heard stories of one or two, and there's been times that it has been one or two, uh, but that's the exception. That's not the, uh, the rule. All through the New Testament, when revival took place, it was because the New Testament church was collectively in unity uh, together. And I don't mean a bunch of churches together. I mean a local church with collective unity together. They put their, uh, their bickering and their fighting and their arguing. I'm not talking about uh, any kind of, of big doctrinal issues. I'm talking about what color the carpet would be or what color to paint the wall. A bunch of foolishness. They put it aside and they said, I'd rather have the power of God than have my little way in everything. We've got to be collective. But I'd say, Brother Ralph, we also see that we have to be calling. We beseech thee. We've got to pray for it. You find me one instance in the Word of God where revival came without prayer. You won't find it. You find me one instance, even in secular history, when revival came without prayer, and it won't happen. Uh, Revival is the ultimate example of the crucifixion of the flesh. You know why? Because prayer is the ultimate activity of the crucifixion of the flesh. A preacher can get up and preach a sermon, and people go to an altar and him really think he's somebody. 
A, a teacher can teach a Sunday school class and a bunch of people comment on it and they really think there's somebody. A special singer can get up and sing a song and everybody just clap and whoop and holler and they think there's someone. But when you pray, there is no appeal to your flesh. It's the ultimate humility. It's the ultimate crucifixion. It's the ultimate of you laying down and saying, God, I'm incapable, but I know that you are totally capable of working in my heart and life. That's why it's such an important spiritual exercise. Uh, we saw, and I, and I probably talk about it, uh, I won't say I talk about it too much, because you can't ever talk about people getting saved too much, right? I mean, that's important. But, I, you know, uh, my heart's desire this year is to do another all-night prayer meeting. And you say, why is that, preacher? Because it worked. <laughs> That's why we, we prayed and God answered and we saw 14 kids saved. I mean, that's big. That's, that's humongous. Heaven and earth rejoiced over that. I believe prayer still works. I believe we're going to have to be a praying people if we're going to see revival. But I believe we see something else. And this interested me. I was, I was, I was fascinated by the title that God uses in this psalm. It doesn't say, we beseech thee, O Lord Almighty. It does not say, uh, we beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven. But it uses this term, the God of hosts. You know what that is? That's God's military title. The word host is, is an army. That's what it is. And you'll find all through the Word of God that an army is called a host of people. And, and the psalmist, when he's talking about God in this context, he talks of Him as the great general of a vast army. And I got to thinking, you know, what does that mean to me? What does that mean to my life? Well, any time that you've got an army, you're implying there's going to be a battle, right? If you're calling on a general, it's because you expect there to be a war. And I would say that the reason the psalmist calls him the God of hosts is he knows if there's going to be revival, there's going to have to be a battle take place. I'd say not only do we have to be collective in calling, but we have to be committed. Because I promise you this, real true biblical revival uh, is always uh, prefaced and followed by spiritual warfare. Always. If we're going to see revival, we're going to have to have a full-on warfare with our flesh and our carnality. We're going to have to search ourselves and allow the Spirit of God to search us. We're going to have to battle those desires and ambitions that we have that are contrary to the will of God. And we're going to have to crucify them to the Lord. And I know everybody talks about surrender, and surrender is the key, Brother Ralph. That's what it's about. It's not about fighting, it's about surrendering. But let me ask you something. Uh, when the criminal, and that's what we are, we're criminals. When he surrenders to the authority, uh, has, has the tough times uh, just ended or just begun? Right? When we surrender our flesh to Christ, that's not when it gets easy for the flesh. That's when it gets difficult for the flesh. There's a battle takes place, and we in our individual lives have to be prepared uh, for a spiritual warfare if we're going to see revival. It's not going to be easy. Uh, we kind of like to think of revival as some mysterious wind that just blows through. Nobody saw it coming. Uh, nobody did anything for it. Nobody knew what happened. Just here it came through like a sweet summer breeze, uh, and it worked in a mighty way, and then there it's gone. It was just easy-peasy, no problem. But that's not biblical revival. Biblical revival is the result of God's people submitting themselves uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ and crucifying self and flesh and pleading with God to come and to destroy their idols and tear them down from their life. That's where revival comes from. But I would say not only a personal revival, but I, or a personal warfare, uh, but an ecclesiastical warfare, church warfare. There's nothing... You know, the devil's not bothered by us if we're dead... 
all, all these dead churches, and there's a lot of good ones in town. I'm not trying to talk about any. There's a lot of good churches doing great things for God. Some of them probably doing a lot more than we are. Uh, but there's a lot of dead ones too, because that's how it is in any town, in any city of any size. And do you know that the dead churches in this town, they don't bother the devil. The devil's not worried about them. All they're doing is showing an endorsement for the devil because they're showing how dead Christianity can be. That's all they're doing. Uh, all they're doing is causing the lost to look at them and the way that they live, and instead of seeing a uh, light upon a hillside, instead of seeing uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ glowing brightly and gloriously, all they're seeing is a bunch of miserable people dragging themselves through the double doors week after week. The devil ain't bothered by those dead churches. But now if we make up our mind that the power and presence of God is going to be in this place and in this body of believers, that upsets the devil. There's a warfare that comes along. And you can probably see it. If you've been in church long enough, it never fails. When God starts doing big things, it's not long before the devil starts trying to do big things too. The devil always tries to come in and bust things up and mess things up. He's a thief and a destroyer and a killer. Uh, he is wicked and vile and abhorrent. And he is ready and he's loaded up for battle. And if we're going to have revival, we're going to have to understand this is going to mean a warfare. It's going to mean a battle. We see some prerequisites, but I want you to notice the presence of revival. What will it mean? And I'll close with these thoughts. Look at what he says. He says, Return, we beseech thee, O God of hosts. Now, what's he asking God to do? What will revival mean for the nation of Israel and for us? Well, notice what he first says. He says, Look down from heaven. He pleads for God's attention. Uh, now, in other words, he's pleading for God to answer his prayer. And that's what we're looking for first and foremost. And that's why revival does come by way of prayer, because revival is the result of answered prayer. He's asking God to pay attention, to look down upon them and to answer this prayer. We're looking for God's attention. But notice what else he says. He says, look down from heaven and behold. He's looking for God's attention, but he's looking for God's assessment. The word behold means more than just to look. It means to study to look upon with intelligence, to apprehend or to comprehend. And, and what he's saying here is, Lord, I don't just want you to look at us, I want you to study us and I want you to assess us. Revival is the laying open of ourselves before God Almighty and the allowing of Him to go through. Not for us. I'll tell you what we like to do. And uh, you always it's funny, when you got kids, and you probably remember when you was raising your kids, or you know even now, uh, that when you was raising kids, kids always want to do it themselves. You know that? No matter what it is, kids always want to do it themselves. And you'll always say, well, why don't you uh, stand here while I stir this batter up? And they'll say, let me do it. I want to do it. Or maybe you're trying to teach them how to do something and they'll say, move out of the way, let me do it. I want to do it myself. Do you know we do that when it comes to the probing and conviction of the Holy Ghost? We want the Lord to let us explore and examine our lives. But the psalmist said, search me, O God. See if there be any wicked or unclean thing within me. The psalmist didn't just say, I'll search me. He said, Lord, I want you to search me. And that's when revival really starts taking a foothold. When we quit this business of saying, I'll decide if that sermon's for me or not, and we start saying, Lord, if it's for me, I want you to show it to me in my heart and life. When we quit saying, well, you know what the preacher said or what the evangelist said or uh, what was mentioned in Sunday school, that's good for so-and-so. And when we start saying, Lord, you didn't put so-and-so here, you put me here to hear that. It must apply to my heart and life. We see an assessment that must take place, and then finally we see the appearance. He says, visit this vine. Visit it. Nothing short, nothing short of the presence of God can bring revival. Nothing short of it. 
All of the meetings in the world can't bring revival. All Listen, all of the giving in the world can't bring revival. All of the cooperation in the world can't bring revival. It must be the manifest presence of God. You say, what does the presence of God mean, Brother Tobit? Well, it means uh, saints getting right with the Lord. It means uh, sins being confessed and forsaken. It means stumbling blocks and bitterness being gotten out of the way and forgiveness being asked for. It means a church united and fervent in their passion to be evangelistic, to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. In other words, it means New Testament Christianity. That's what we're driving at. That's the purpose. Revival is the spirit of New Testament Christianity. And New Testament Christianity is the framework and example of what true revival really, really is. It's not the exception. It ought to be the everyday of things. We, we have to get to the place where we need God again. We've gotten so used to, to just doing it our way and doing it without Him. I'm being honest with you tonight. I, we need to get back to where we need Him again. And I'd say even as a pastor, I'm guilty of that. God's dealt with me more and more frequently lately uh, about the choices I have to make as a pastor about what I'm really interested in. There's a lot of different things that you can uh, focus your energies and attention on as a pastor. But listen, i tell you something that gets brushed to the side a lot, Brother Charlie, and that is just a sincere desire for God to be manifest in our midst. In a powerful way. I don't mean in a visible way. I mean in a spiritual way. And we as a church have to make up our mind that in the midst of doing all the things we're doing, and we're not doing things that we shouldn't. I mean, I believe in, we got a full docket coming up, and I'm excited about all the activities and things that we've got coming up. But listen, let's not lose sight in all of that. Uh, those things are the, the, the means which we're trying to reach, the presence and power of God. All those things are our vehicles for us to try to reach revival. That's all they are. The whole purpose of camp is to see revival in our young people. The whole purpose of VBS is to be an outpouring of the revival that hopefully we've already seen in being evangelistic, reaching kids and seeing uh, the lives of young people change. The purpose of the revival meeting in March is to draw us closer in our walk with the Lord. I mean, that's what it's about. And we have to get to the place where we need it again. It's not just a byproduct, not something that's nice to have, but something that's necessary for our daily church life.